All right. All right. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, December 6th, and I'm Will Tarter, fellow at the Center for Community Solutions and moderator for today's forum. We are at the Happy Dog in Gordon Square for the City Club's monthly Take Takes On series. And tonight, we are taking on Cleveland City budget. And look, we get it. Listening to public officials debate a budget isn't the most exciting thing to do. But the municipal budget process here in Cleveland is an essential part of democratic governance and directly impacts communities where people live, work, and play. The budget determines how public funds are allocated to things like education, healthcare, infrastructure, and courts. Every year in the city of Cleveland, the mayor and city council negotiate a budget of nearly $2 billion. While we may not get into specific line items tonight because we only have 30 minutes, we will take a high level view of the budget in general. I do also want to acknowledge the fact that Cleveland residents just went through a bruising election and community conversation about issue 38 and participatory budgeting. It is not my desire to relitigate the issue. However, both sides would agree about the importance of civic education about the city budget process and its impact. Our goal for this evening is for everyone who is here and tuning in on the live stream to take something away from the conversation. Whether you've seen many budgets or this is your first time learning about the city budget process. So what exactly is the city of Cleveland budget? What is it not? And what do we as citizens and advocates need to know and how to engage in the process. Joining me here on stage to help answer those questions is the City of Cleveland Chief Finance Officer Ahmed Abunama and Ward 17 Councilman Charles Slife. Let's give them a round of applause. If you have a question for our panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794 and City Club staff will try and work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming our speakers to the Happy Dog. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you both for being here and being on the panel for this very important conversation. I want to start with an explanation of the process itself. And so we know that the very first thing that comes in is what's known as the mayor's estimate. And that takes place in, in February, by February 1st. And then the mayor comes to city council, presents to the budget by the middle of February. You have hearings the second half of February, and then the budget is finalized and read into the record in March, and it has to be submitted to the state by April 1st. So let's start with the question, why do they call it an estimate? Great, uh, great question. And uh, just first, it's really wonderful to be here. I've spent a lot of time at the Happy Dog over the years and <laughs> honestly never thought I'd be here talking about the city's budget in any capacity, <laughs> whether as a city employee or a resident. Uh, so the, the timing and, and process of the budget is laid out in the city's charter in sections 38 through 44 for those who are interested. Uh, and it, it really does clearly dictate that when and how information needs to be transmitted to city council so that the budget process can begin. Uh, the reason it's called an estimate is that you know, in, in reality, any budget is an estimate. 
We're, we're forecasting what our revenues are going to be. We're forecasting what our expenses will be. Um, we don't know what the future is going to hold. For example, when the city was going through this process in 2020, I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, the world was going to shut down uh, in the middle of March. Uh, and so any budget document that is forward-looking is going to be an estimate. It is, however, kind of our best educated um, estimates of what our revenues will be, what our expenses will be based on history. And so when we go through this process, it really is um, as accurate as we, we try to make it as accurate an estimate as we possibly can. Awesome. And then when it comes to the budget itself, $1.9 billion, $700 million is for the general fund, and $1.2 billion is for what's known as enterprise funds. Can you tell us what are enterprise funds? Sure. Enterprise funds are operations of the city that function more like uh, a private business. So think the division of water. Um, anyone who lives, frankly, in the city and in most of the region will get its, drink, its drinking water from uh, the Cleveland Division of Water. The division charges rates that cover the expenses of taking the water out of Lake Erie, treating it, and then transmitting it to your house. And so as a result, because it charges fees to support its service, it's able to be self-supporting. So we don't use any tax revenue collected through income tax, property tax, et cetera, to support the operations of the Division of Water. It is really a self-sustaining enterprise that is able to operate based on the fees it generates for providing the service of potable water across the region. And so to that point, uh, $1.2 billion that gets allocated for those entities, which bring in their own money, why is that allocated if they're self-sufficient? Clear, uh, clear answer in the charter, and really it's kind of consistent across all governments. We can only spend money that has been appropriated by council. And you know, without going too far back to 10th grade government class, the legislative branch is the branch that appropriates funds that gives the executive branch the authority to spend it. And so any public money, whether it's generated through the Division of Water for providing water or uh, to the general fund for to spend income tax revenues has to be appropriated by city council. Councilman Slife, let's bring you in here. When sure. we talk about the role of council in this process, $700 million in the general fund, that's a lot of money. Could you talk about where those dollars go and how they impact residents in your district? Sure. So, uh, you know, when the budget is delivered as the estimate by uh, the mayor's administration, it is for the entirety of the $1.9 billion. So as, as Ahmed said, Kali Ahmed, um, as uh, Ahmed said, that's water, that's, that's the airport. Uh, but you're going to hear us talk a lot about the general fund uh, because the general fund is, I, I uh, say, it's analogous to the city's checking account. So the public safety, public works, parks, uh, snow plowing, uh, waste collection, all of the kind of the routine city services that you receive from the city of Cleveland as a resident or a business by and large get paid out of the general fund. Uh, so that's that's that, that's the main focal point of you know any call I get most ooh, probably about 80% of the calls I get if not more are related to city services. So this time of year it's leaf pickup. You know people want to know about leaf pickup if it's possible to expand leaf pickup uh, when when trucks are going to be coming around. All of those are general fund expenditures uh, which is why we focus so heavily on it during the budget hearings. But the budget hearings do cover the the, the rest of the enterprise funds as well. Now it's interesting that you mentioned things that happen during the year like fall is is leaf pickup and snow removal and stuff like that. 
how do you balance the needs of the budget on an ongoing basis um, that may you know change things that come up during the year when the process takes place in those first three months of the year? Sure. So you know we ha we certainly have a political culture in the city of Cleveland where people are accustomed to calling their council person. And I will say that it is valuable because you start to, there's a trend analysis to it. So someone calls and says, my garbage can fell into the back of the garbage truck, and you kind of laugh it off. But when you get the 14th call, you say, oh, this, is some, this happens a lot. You know, so what are we budgeting for garbage can replacement? And one of the challenges, you know, as we work together as two separate branches of government, I would say that a challenge that council has over the course of the year, taking in all of these inputs about what people want out of city government, and then in a very short, constricted period during budget season, trying to quantify how to make all of those improvements because 70 plus percent of the general fund really is labor. So if you're talking about mm. increasing services, decreasing services, you're really mo more often than not talking about headcounts, changing headcounts, mm -hmm. uh, and working collaboratively with 16 other members to try to figure out where the commonalities are, and then uh, you know passing a budget that accommodates the ability to fund that service, and then over the course of the year, it's working with the administration to uh, ensure that what we desire in the past budget is implemented because a colleague of mine, Mike Polensic, will say this very frequently and we like to remind people, city council appropriates, we do not hire, fire, or uh, deploy services. So this is a partnership that we rely on of appropriating the proper funds and then making sure that we're able to partner through the year as the funds get delivered to residents. Now that's a great point. So on one hand there's the allocation of budgets, and then another thing is the execution of that plan throughout the year. So how, as an administration, do you plan for uh, things that come up, but more importantly, things that may not come up? Or may that come up that you may not plan for? How about yes. that? Sorry. Yes, well, there are always things that we don't plan for that come up. And mm -hmm. you know, as, as, as was just discussed, you know, council appropriates funds for our city operations. And if it's our job as the executive branch, administering the budget, administering the day-to-day, to make so those sort of real-time assessments about what actually needs to be done today, mm -hmm. right? There's some things that we have to do every day. We have to pick up trash. We have to have um, in the snow, the snow plowed. But there are a lot. There's a lot of our work where we have to react on the fly, and we have to um, provide for the needs that are that have come up in that very moment. Mm -hmm. And you know, hopefully, we're able to do that within the appropriations we have mm -hmm. uh, that we've already received from council. But that's not always the case, and so when when we do encounter circumstances for for which we don't have enough appropriations or the appropriations aren't in the right place, mm -hmm. uh, we have to go back to council, adjust the budget so that we the money is actually where it needs to be to provide those services. Excellent. And Charles, could you talk about you've you've been a part of this process as a city council person, but you also have worked for the administration. Can you talk about what your observations are in terms of the budget process, having seen it now from both vantage points? Sure, so my observation from the council side is sort of what I touched on, that there's, there's a need over the course of the year to figure out, in partnership with all the directors, what, what essentially a, a cost of one unit of service is so that we can figure out how to make adjustments uh, when during budget or in, pardon me, in real time. I had previously worked in the administration of our previous mayor, Frank Jackson. It's actually interesting for me to, you know, in this venue to hear directly from Ahmed, because I will say there was there was a key difference when I was working in the mayor's office, and it relates to the fact, and this is if there's one thing to take home, the budget must be balanced by state law. 
So if we want to add something, it means something has to be cut. Or if there's some drastic change in the economy and we know revenues are going to come in far less than we anticipated they would be, we have to make some city pretty serious decisions in real time. When I was working in the previous administration, it was a time when for many years, year over year, we did not have a balanced budget. The cost of government uh, exceeded our revenues every year. So very, very strategically, by design at that time, we were not hiring vacant positions. I remember one time I said, hey, I need pens, and they're like, no more pens for the rest of the year, because we knew from the onset of the year it was you know, $50 million we were going to be short. We did not, it, so, so imagine every month you are having to find money in the couch to make rent. That's how the city was operated for many, of year, many years. And that's why we came forward in 2016 seeking the half a percent income tax so that we could get to where we are now, which is where we do have the revenues coming in uh, to cover the costs of, of, of city services and city government over the course of a year. And pens. And yeah, pens. And pens. Yeah, <laughs> we now have pens. So the city does, to to Councilman Slice's point, the city does have a rainy day fund. Is that correct? That is correct. It's uh, right now. It's about sixty-five million dollars. Sixty-five million. And um, how do you define raining? Uh, it is actually defined in the codified ordinances, uh, but it's of course an incredibly vague, relatively useless definition. Uh, I think, in reality. When, when we need to use it, we mm -hmm. will certainly know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I could say in, in 2020, if the federal government had not stepped up with the CARES Act funds and then following that, the American Rescue Plan Act funds, the city would have absolutely had to uh, tap into its rainy day fund. Uh, so it's, it's a really good resource to have because if there's one certainty in, in what we do is there will inevitably, inevitably be another economic downturn, recession, mm -hmm. And because of our uh, incredible reliance on income tax as our primary source of revenue, um, we will need to use a rainy day fund in the future. There's, there's no question. Income tax is the first to react to downturns and upswings, and it, it's gone immediately. If people are being laid off, that's no more income tax coming from them, unlike property tax, which really does take a long time for it to, to normalize based on what's happening in the economy. And if I understand correctly, the income tax represents 66% of the revenue that is comprised in the city budget. Is that correct? That is correct. And so when you have things like work from home, right, where people are working from home, how has that impacted the revenue that's coming into the city or your ability to plan uh, accordingly? A, a great question. Uh, so when I, when I got to this position uh, in February of 2022, the impact of work from home was the, the topic of the day. I mean, nobody knew uh, what was going to happen to municipal budgets in the state of Ohio. Uh, this was particularly in light of some legislative changes down in Columbus that uh, changed the, the rule that had been in effect during the sort of in 2020 uh, and most of 2021 that whether, whether or not someone worked from home, they still paid their income tax to the city that their job was technically located in. So if you worked at Sherwin-Williams, whether you were working at home or uh, in Landmark Tower, it didn't matter. You paid your income tax to the city of Cleveland. Once that law changed, the amount of work from home that happened became a very critical question for us to, to resolve. And there were estimates that cities in Ohio would lose up to 25% of their general fund budget, which I don't probably don't need to go into how catastrophic that would be for a city that is so reliant on income tax. Uh, reality has turned out not to be anywhere near as bad. 
Uh, one of the positives of inflation has been wage inflation uh, for a, an entity that relies on income tax. Increasing wages has been very good for income tax. Um, that said, there's certainly an impact. It's just masked. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard to actually determine what we've lost out on because of work from home, mm -hmm. because there is no central reporting of how many people are working from home. And that's interesting because, uh, Councilman Seif, I remember you saying that like 70% of the expenditures, if I remember correctly, was, was salaries, right? And so if the amount of money that's devoted towards salaries goes up, then it would cause a fiscal pressure on the rest of the budget. Does that sound about right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I guess when we're, when we're talking about wage inflation or things like that, um, I think that's really important to make sure that, that workers are paid and they're, and they're paid uh, for the work that they're doing. But I was wondering if you kind of talk about um, how from a fiscal planning standpoint uh, that impacts the ability to um, especially do new initiatives, right? Like when a new administration comes in, there's things that they want to tackle, um, but there may mean, mean more dollars that goes towards those new things as opposed to things that they have previously funded. So I'm wondering if you both kind of speak to that. How do you balance things that you've been paying for throughout the years versus things you want to do, but some of the fiscal constraints you might face? Uh, sure. So I, I guess to, to start off, the best thing you can do for the city budget is work in Cleveland. It also helps to go to the game and to go to the casino. Those are also revenue <laughs> sources, so uh, don't hold back, guys. Um, you know, I... Uh, 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 kind of a, a phrase you'll hear from time to time is that uh, a city budget or any public budget is a moral document. And I guess I don't disagree, but I would almost like a subtitle of given the constraints and the necessity to have a balanced budget. Because to your point, you know, I think that, look, everybody that's been in Cleveland knows the, the, the scale of needs in Cleveland. We are a city that is built for almost a million people. We still have to maintain that level of infrastructure. We have entrenched poverty. We have the legacies of redlining. We have lead, lead poisoning. And there's all of these things that are all worthy of additional investment. And uh, when, when I hear without that, that kind of tagline towards the end of it, when I hear that the budget is a moral document, I almost wonder if people think that we don't see the problem. We see the problem, but we still have to do a lot of pretty, like we have to have internal audit at City Hall. That's really important. You know, we have to pay for gas for the, the, the garbage trucks to come. So we're, we're constantly feeling this need to how do you do more, mm -hmm. knowing that there are limited funds. And in the past few years, we've been really fortunate to have federal relief. We've been able to do some uh, really great things, investing in affordable housing, medical debt relief, you know, things that we probably wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, but we had federal dollars. And I really hope in at, when you add all these things together, over time, we start to move towards a just a more uh, a, a, co a community that is more financially stable, which would allow the public sector within it to be able to have larger revenues in order to do more of these things. So it's 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 constantly like you're trying to uh, uh, create the you know uh, build the plane as you're flying, I suppose, to mm -hmm. use a cliche. <laughs> I, I think to build off of off of that, it, it's it is certainly a moral document, but it's it's a moral document that's written by someone who's lived in the world and actually understands that there are limits to what you can do. Um, I think when we when we look at our expenses, uh, our per employee costs have gone up since 2001, 144%. Inflation over that time is 70%. And so, uh, and that's really driven a lot by healthcare costs uh, that have just been incredibly uh, high over the last two plus decades. 
so what that means is we have to have fewer people. There, because of how much of our budget goes toward people, people are who provide services, we've gone from a general fund employment level of about 8,000 employees in 2001 to uh, just under 4,000 as of uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And so that's really how you manage it. And so then in that context, if you want to do something new, mm -hmm. we, I think, have a responsibility to be really thoughtful about what that new thing is and ask ourselves, is it worth displacing something else entirely or maybe diminishing the, the level of service in another place? Mm -hmm. Because we, despite raising the income tax in 2016 to two and a half percent, which has really given us some flexibility, hasn't produced the kind of revenue that we would need to really do all of the things that we all, all the, to solve all the problems or address all the problems that we all see. That's really interesting. So the the income tax that was raised a few years ago had maybe an expectation of what things could be done if it were raised. And perhaps since then, it's not realized its potential? It's a little more complicated. So the, okay. in, the income tax <laughs> itself has performed about as well as was projected okay. uh, at the time. It's everything else. So our property tax uh, has yet to eclipse what we collected in 2001. Since 2001 was the high water mark, mm -hmm. and we haven't hit that number. It's 22 years. Um, all, a lot of our other revenue sources since 2017, when the income tax took effect, have actually gone down in the aggregate, while our expenses, um, healthcare, mm -hmm. et cetera, have gone up. gone up. And in many cases, those increases in expenses have outpaced the relatively healthy increases in income tax collections. And as, as the politician at the table, I'm obligated to point out at this point, uh, the state of Ohio has a $1 billion plus rainy day fund, and a lot of that has been amassed really on the backs of municipalities. Historically, uh, there was something called the local government fund, which was essentially a rebate of a portion of sales tax. Uh, that has essentially been zeroed out. So part of the reason we had to do the income tax increase, the, number, the argument for it was that in losing the local government fund, this money was going away permanently, and there was no way to be either. I mean, I think it was Madison and Lake County just disbanded its police and merged it with the township. There were real repercussions to losing those state dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, so it... it mention it to just to point out that we are at the local level we are functioning in this much larger system and often we can't change uh, the systemic issues that we see we have to just learn how to accommodate and move forward so that's a really interesting point because I know a lot of folks follow the state budget process very closely and that takes place in the spring of odd years so earlier this year we had a state budget process from uh, April until June and the county has their budget process that happens in the fall but you guys do it every uh, every year, year. <laughs> from January to, to April and so I'm wondering how does that impact the differing timelines impact your planning so like when the state passes their budget um, how does that you know uncertainty I guess for six months impact the planning process at the city level I think generally aside from any drastic changes in state policy. So local government fund was, it, it had been on the decline since the start of the century. Uh, I think our, our share of local government fund peaked in the early aughts around $65 million a year. Right now we're at about 32, 33 million a year. Uh, in 2000, 
2012, I think, is when the Kasich administration really sliced it. Mm. Uh, so absent those major policy changes by the state, it mm -hmm. is pretty predictable. It's okay. Most of the uh, funding that cities get from the state uh, is formula-based. And so so long as that formula remains the same and there isn't uh, a massive economic event, mm -hmm. uh, we can pretty accurately predict what it is we can expect from the state. Okay. That's, that's really good insight to know. I think for, as people who follow these various processes, I know right now I'm paying very close attention to the issue two conversations and where the revenues go. Um, and I know municipalities were built into the legislation uh, that, that passed uh, back in November or earlier, I guess, uh, in November. And so I guess there's a question now of where those dollars would go. So I'm sure you guys are paying very close attention to we that are. conversation as well. Um, Councilman, one of the things that's really interesting is you have 17 different individuals at the table and 17 different vantage points when this process is taking place. Um, how do you manage the individual needs of your ward with the overall kind of city priorities that, that are needed during the budget process? Well, that's probably why the hearings take two weeks. You know, there's, there's, there's 17 of us. Uh, you know, it's... It, to me, it's it's important to build relationships. You know, there's there's some issues that you know. Th I guess f to start off, there's things that affect everybody. Like everybody wants an ambulance to show up. Everybody wants their garbage picked up. Everybody wants their snow plowed. Uh, so there's a lot of things to build off of that are common. And then also, un un and unfortunately, a lot of the challenges we see in Cleveland, like the need for affordable housing you know, uh, juvenile lead poisoning are also not confined to specific neighborhoods. So mm. in, in many ways, we are dealing with with similar phenomena and coming up with ways, that re recognizing that there are ways that we can uh, collaborate and, and build a, upon, you know, each other's ideas. Uh, but, but that being said, you know, we do have a ward-based system. Uh, it's important to think citywide, but at the end of the day, you know, I represent 25,800 residents in the West Park neighborhood, and, you know, they are looking to get parks improved and uh, pave the road, and everybody wants their street resurfaced. You know, very, and that's very understandable. Uh, so, you know, I, there's, I think, an acknowledgement uh, within the council that what's good for one neighborhood is good for the entire city, and that if we are so territorial that we are not seeing the forest for the trees that we're that we are holding Cleveland back, and that more often than not by working together, collaborating, showing how things do have citywide impact, even if they may feel that they are more narrowly tailored to a certain part of town, that this is part of building Cleveland up collectively, and, and that it's, it's really unavoidable. Every, everything that happens takes place in a ward. And it's, you know, when you look at, for example, capital spending, Ward 3 is always on top of capital spending dollars. And of course it is. It has the bridges. It has City Hall. It has public auditorium. So, you know, I think we kind of take a pause and try to educate our residents that the spending in Ward 17 versus Ward 3 isn't so much a value statement as much as it's uh, we focus on uh, areas of need, um, you know, condition of uh, different city assets, and, and, and try to make sure that we're deploying our dollars as strategically as we can. But as you, as you can imagine, uh, getting 16 people to agree to anything can be tough. You know, I think one of the things that a lot of folks who are watching would be very interested in knowing is if you're uh, either a person who lives in Cleveland, or works in Cleveland, and they have a concern or something that they want to see addressed, they want to know who, how uh, to make their voice heard. And I hear several things. On one hand, you can 
uh, speak to your elected official anytime throughout the year, but you know that during the, the time period of, of that January to March time is when the budget process is kind of in its um, most excited state. So I guess my question would be, if you're a person watching this and you're like, I wanna make my voice heard, where, how, who is the best way to go about making that happen? I think there are a lot of avenues for, for folks to engage. I mean, we live in an incredibly connected world, far different than 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, I think one effort that, that I've been making and my colleagues have been making in the finance department is uh, leading up to the process to adopt the 2023 operating budget, we held uh, two community uh, budget meetings, one in Slavic Village, one downtown. Uh, that felt a little late, frankly. We held those in February. We'd already submitted the mayor's estimate. It was, I think, useful educationally, but not a great moment in time to get feedback mm -hmm. and input from people because, well, we've You've already we made already, it. We already sent this monster document over to city council. So this year, leading into the 2024 operating budget process, we are, are here <laughs> right now. Yeah. Cheers. Um, we also had an event uh, at in, in Ward 17, in Ward 1, and Ward 15 over the last several weeks as a way to meet people in the neighborhoods, sort of talk about the process. And then we had an exercise uh, that in which we asked people to, um, with you know, sort of fake currency of uh, stickers, to indicate on on poster boards where they would allocate their stickers, mm -hmm. their 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 appropriations, to sort of give some immersive experience of, hey, this is, you know, that we have a lot of things we want to do, but we have limited resources uh, in which to do them in uh, the method of stickers. Uh, and so that's one way. I, I also think City Hall is open. And, you know, I have people who, members of the public who just pop into my office. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that if that was happening all day, every day, it would be really hard to do the, the sort of tasks that I'm responsible for. But of course, I think f people should feel free to engage with us directly, to email, call, stop by. Uh, you know, the, the members of the administration, we also represent the city in a different way uh, than, than council members do. But we're as happy and as eager to help solve the issues and hear your concerns um, as, part of, as, as we run the city. Excellent. All right. Well, <laughs> I, have, I have a lot more questions, but um, we're almost about to get to the audience Q&A. Um, one thing that I would be very interested in kind of knowing is that you're headed into the third preparation of the estimate, I guess, as we kind of head into the next month. So what um, priorities does the administration have kind of going into this uh, third estimate and or are there things that you've learned from the first two budget processes that might be informing how you approach this third time around? Yeah, great. Uh, so a, a couple thoughts. First, we have had the great fortune of receiving uh, quite a bit of federal funds uh, as, as in response to the pandemic that has allowed the city to uh, make tremendous investments in a lot of major long-term priorities. And um, that's great just because we can do it, but also it alleviates some of the pressure on our general fund on an annual basis because we've been able to put real money toward real problems uh, which frees up money to do other other work. Uh, in, in terms of priorities, I think we're, we're going to continue, and I think any administration would say this, uh, 
we're going to continue to be really focused on day-to-day -day services. I mean, th that is those are the things that uh, make people want to live in a place, make people want to move from a place, uh, and you know, we we have to continue to invest in in making sure that our day-to-day -day operations are as effective and efficient as as possible. I think one of the you know one thing that I think we've learned is going back to the unpredictability mm -hmm. of the budget. It mm -hmm. is an estimate. We don't really know what's going to pop up in the course of a year. And so we're really giving a lot of thought to how are, what, what ways can we structure the budget to be a little more, so that it can be a little more flexible in its application mm -hmm. so that we do, while still living within the appropriations that council has given, we have a little more flexibility to deal with the issues that arise on a day-to-day -day basis and allocate resources exactly where they need to be in real time. And mm -hmm. so how that is going to play out is, I think, still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. You know, the clock's ticking. But yeah. I think that that is one significant change that I'm hoping we see in the mayor's estimate sent over to council. Especially, uh, you know, you have lakefront development and all the things that you guys are looking at, right, that are long-term visions uh, in addition to the practical things that people face on an everyday basis. Councilman Slife, uh, could you kind of talk about um, what things that you've learned as you have gone through each of these kind of budget processes that um, you think would be helpful as you head into this upcoming season? Sure. So I had mentioned that, uh, so working backwards, budget has to be sent to the state by April 1st, but the budget has to be passed. There, so if you, if you basically backdate from April 1st, you recognize that we end up with basically two weeks of budget hearings around President's Day, two weeks of reconciliation process at the beginning of March, and then legislatively there's essentially a two-week period that we have to you know, have the budget publicized before it can be passed. So what, I, what I've learned is it's very difficult to do basically a year's worth to, so theoretically, and I, this hasn't happened, but theoretically, the budget could be delivered to council, and the council could say thanks, but we're going to go a completely different direction and and write an entirely new budget. I think we could all agree that the practicality of doing that in two weeks is next to impossible. Also, it's not all that prudent. And and sort of in recognition of we as council are trying to get our head around the operations and how you quantify the operations, we started this year, this fourth quarter, doing hearings specifically towards operations so we could ask questions hopefully set some expectations of what we're hearing and and i hope that that aids ahmed and his team as they prepare so uh just a small example the planning director uh was here i don't know if she stepped out director wong uh there's some legislation pending that uh, if passed could put a lot more burden on the board of zoning appeals so one of the first questions we asked was you know with your current staff are you able to take on this added amount of of workflow or do we need to talk about increasing the headcount for board of zoning appeals so trying to have conversations like that now so that we're not all scrambling for a two-week period in March and finding ourselves unable to uh, really really make the the changes that the council is trying to see in the budget be they big or be they small so really we're in the middle of that learning season right now right now as right we, now. as we speak so there's an opportunity for engagement people have ideas suggestions things they want to see they can make their voice heard right now Sure, and, and I'll say you'd be surprised as a council member, and maybe, maybe I'm the outlier, but I don't get a lot of these technical questions 
whether it's in person, an email, walking through the grocery store. So I'm, I'm excited people are here because I want to have these conversations. Sometimes I feel as if I'm screaming into the void saying, somebody asked me about the budget. Nobody wants to talk about the budget. Maybe if there were tater tots. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic that we are finding a, a path forward. I think the thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind is if you come forward and say, we should add $5 million to the Department of Building and Housing, which is a great thing. We should totally do that. But we have to find $5 million somewhere else because we have to have a balanced budget. So that's, that's constantly the give and take of figuring out how to meet all of our needs, how to make City Hall work better, but doing so within the constraints of a balanced budget. So that I w before we get to the audience Q&A, I do want to, to stick on that point, right? Because a few weeks ago, the mayor made the announcement about investment in the police, if I remember correctly, a significant investment in the police. So is that something that comes from funds that have already been allocated? Or to your point, does that take away from someplace else? I'll, I'll, let, I'll let the chief answer more specifically, but I'll say that's, that's exactly the first question that I believe Councilman Harsh, who's uh, back towards the back, asked. You know, how, is, how are we going to absorb this increase in costs? Because philosophically, you know, pay the police more, definitely pay every city employee more, but recognizing that we can't do that, we can't do that uh, aspirationally if we don't, and find out on the other side of it that we just don't mechanically have the money to pay for it. Yeah. Well, that's. Go ahead. I'll I think it. Closing thought. It is this. That is that is the task mm -hmm. is recognizing there are some challenges that have to be addressed, and addressing them in our situation because we're not a wealthy city with unlimited resources requires some sacrifice somewhere, and I think reasonable minds differ on what those judgment calls are and and where the line should be drawn. But that's that's. Our job, yeah, and um, obviously input from the people we represent and work on behalf of is incredibly important. Um, but know that to the sort of the, the through line of the conversation, I think, is that none of these decisions are being made in isolation. They they all kind of relate to each other, and yes. we have to be really thoughtful as as to how we implement these things that we know we have to do. So civic engagement is paramount. Yes. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thank you. I think that's a great way to, to end the, the panel conversation. We're about to move into the audience Q&A. For our live stream audience, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Will Tarter, a fellow at the Center for Community Solutions and moderator for, moderator for tonight's conversation on Cleveland City Budget. Joining me on stage is City of Cleveland Chief Finance Officer Ahmed Abu Nama and Ward 17 Councilman Charles Slife. If you're here with us in person, you can line up next to the microphone on my left to ask your question. If you're joining us virtually or perhaps a little microphone shy, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff will try and work them into the program. Can we have our first question, please? <laughs> I spent 10 years working for Congress. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I spent 10 years working for Congress and writing budget law, so I'm glad anybody is talking about budgets. It's great to see you guys here. But one thing I want you to comment on is the idea that you're only part of, you're looking at part of the budget. Nobody's here to talk about the, the layer that the county's going to add, could add on, and they have different decisions that they may add. 
and nobody's talking about the decisions that were made decades ago that are gonna impact people today, like decisions about stadiums and bonds and things along those lines. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of balance? Um, because that's the real question that taxpayers are gonna be facing. Uh, how, does, how does the current council and the current administration help people wrestle with those long-term spending ideas? I think it, it, it's a really good question, and I think it's one of the, the burdens that any current set of uh, leaders, elected officials, administration officials, is, is always going to be saddled with is the decisions of, of its predecessors. And, you know, bond deals live for 30-plus years. Uh, and on one hand, it's, it's nice that at least they're, we know what they are. They're predictable costs. We can plan for them. Um, but they do limit our ability to deploy resources that we have available to current needs. Sort of it's what our predecessors have said, we, this is important to us today. We can't pay for it all now, so we're going to pay for it over time. Uh, I think there's always that, that tension of trying to solve the needs of today with, while maintaining enough flexibility for the needs of tomorrow. Uh, and I don't know that there's any science to figuring out that balance. And it's, you know, we're going to saddle our successors with future debts. And I don't know if there's any way around that. Uh, just like, you know, Mayor, Mayor White, Mayor Jackson, Mayor Voinovich, they had to do the same thing because they had to solve the needs of that moment, which at times requires obligating people of the future. Uh, you know, I... So I started off in economic development at the city of Cleveland, and I remember this moment where I was so impressed that people could say, if we do this financial deal, it's going to yield this amount of money specifically over this term. And I remember, if I, did I miss a day in math? Like, how did they come up with such a specific number? And, and came to this realization that there are ways that we can attempt in a very educated way. This isn't just we're scribbling numbers, but when you take the investment and you know employment, you know that we have an income tax, that you can do a very educated guess on whether or not uh, any public investment like a stadium or a bond uh, pay pays for itself and in what duration. I think that, and that we can honestly have an entire hours about how you analyze that, uh, but I, th I know my goal in, in how we use city money is making sure that we're not just casting it into the wind, and I think we all know the adage, you have to spend money to make money. I, I, th I think most of us would agree to that. It's trying to make sure that we're spending money to make money in a way that is actually impactful and that we're not doing it in a way that's essentially giving away the farm. And and again, it's a great topic to, uh, to discuss more at, at, at length because I know that those are the things that there's there's degrees of controversy among it in the community, but there's also a lot to unpack of what all the factors, all the externalities that come into the analysis that's done uh, as as those options are being placed before City Hall. So I heard an idea for a program on stadium funding at some point. Is that right? <laughs> that's all right. I may or may not be interested in that. <laughs> all right, go ahead, Amit. Yeah, I, I would just make one final point is on, on the capital side on debt. I think there's a lot of good sense in having those obligations live for 30 plus years that, you know, if we're building a rec center, we're, we're building uh, water transmission lines, it's not just today's residents that benefit from those. It's going to be residents 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And there is a, a good moral argument for ensuring that they also pay for this, the benefit of the, the infrastructure that they're using. That's a really interesting point. I, I just want to make sure that we understand that it's not just looking out for the needs of today, but also the impact on future generations as well. So thank you for, for, uh, for bringing that up. 
Our next question. Hi there. So I suppose I'm a bit of a single issue voter in this sense, but um, similar with investing in future generations, I feel like the, the tree canopy of Cleveland is something that's very important to me. Uh, yeah, I, I hope other people care about it. It seems like other people do. So I have a partner who is a arborist for the city of Rocky River. This is an excellent quality and a partner for me, but one of the interesting qualities I see is that he will be very qualified to do tree work and to plant trees and to advise city council to plant trees of a certain variety, but city council will continue to push for certain trees that appeal to voters, it appears. So I guess I'm just curious, well, is city council willing to push for employees of the city of Cleveland who have skills that are valuable and who government employment attracts, are they willing to push them into roles that will advantage the city, I guess? I don't know. That was weirdly worded, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. No, it's all right. So I, I will start off by just echoing that I also love trees, and I joke, Brian Casey and I were at something on a Saturday, and someone came up and said, what do council members talk about on a Saturday? And at the same time, we both go trees. I, more, more, of our, more of all our calls, whether it's maintenance of the trees specifically or sidewalk conditions or street flooding, like trees are a real commonality among a lot of the calls that we get. Uh, that's one of uh, the plurality, I could say, of my calls come into trees. And it is an uh, area that, so Jenny Spencer, councilwoman here in Ward 15, shout out, uh, serves uh, on the tree commission for council. And a challenge we've had recently is a recognition, to my understanding, and uh, I can be corrected if I mess it up, that the way that we funded tree maintenance in the past, uh, we can no longer do that with a bond dollar source. So right now, we are honestly in a backlog of tree maintenance because we're having to find general fund dollars in order to do it. Now, I will say, back to the statement I had said earlier about council not hiring, firing, deploying, this is a great area where uh, uh, we have a city arborist, and uh, her name is Jennifer Kipp, and she's great. And uh, she is the ultimate determination of whether or not a get tree gets removed, whether a tree gets planted, uh, how you do sidewalk work to uh, try to save a tree, or if it's inevitable, it has to be torn down. We're dealing with a lot of legacy tree issues because I don't think trees were planted wisely decades previously, so we're running into buckled sidewalks and all these issues. To the city's credit, I would say we're being more strategic about it, and we're recognizing that you can't just plant any tree under power lines, or if it's a small tree lawn. I will say an area that the council's trying to push City Hall a little bit is if we want to restore our tree canopy, the ability, in my opinion, to do so relies on us being able to plant trees on public, or I mean private property, where there's not constrictions of lines and small tree, tree lawns. So, but historically within City Hall, that's been seen as an issue because we can't spend public money on private property. So I believe it's an area we should explore and try to unstick because there are those public health benefits to trees. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Um, this is a question for the chief about um, uh, really best practices in other cities actually around allocation of CDBG funds. Um, so. The city council allocates this year, has allocated $7.3 million of federal community development block grant funds to their own ward funds to prioritize as they see fit, usually to fund CDCs. 
So to, um, to the finance director, is that common in other cities? I've heard from colleagues in community development in other cities, they're shocked at that practice. Um, what is the best practice in terms of allocation of CDBG funds? Is it to let individual council members divvy up those funds or is that usually done on a citywide basis um, in terms of allocation? Uh, it's a, a great question and I certainly will not profess to be an expert on uh, how uh, CDBG funds are handled across the country. I know that through some survey work that's been done, it is uh, common for there to be council participation in, in how funds are allocated. Um, the amounts vary by, by city. You know, the, the formula directs more money, of course, toward large urban areas than to smaller places. Um, but I think in general, there is a recognition uh, between both council and the administration that we could certainly do better in terms of driving impact to have a more strategic approach to how we allocate the funds, whether or not it's council or the administration, uh, because we, we receive significant funds each year uh, and they the way we determine how the money is spent kind of spreads it out pretty thinly across the city. And I think there has been a lot of work over the last year to identify better ways forward for using those funds, not necessarily focusing on who is the decider of how the money gets used, but having a better framework for, for, for making those decisions to ensure that we're driving more impact. Excellent, thank you. Next question, please. Okay, well, number one, I appreciate the Star Wars bell of the Jedi Council. <laughs> so, I have four questions. So if you, you, you have your pens handy, so. Take two each or something. But so the first one was, um, <clears throat> I'd like to know some of your rainy day examples, because we didn't give those at the time that we were discussing those. Okay, so just two, three examples of your rainy day usage. Um, also, the second one is population trends as we head into the future, impacting you know um, income tax growth and development. Uh, the next one is um, if you have some ideas on incentive jobs incentives for impacting uh, property tax down the road because obviously there is a correlation between middle class um, accessibility and property ownership. Lastly, shout out to Jennifer Kipp. She's a friend of mine, right? <laughs> so when I heard you say that, okay, shout out. But is there an area that is most uh, typically underfunded? that you utilize other areas of funding to service that which you need to really like hit those marks on? And is that the general fund, for example? You mentioned the general fund, right? Sometimes tapping into that. So my question is, do you typically tap into that, for, let's say for the trees, for example, right? For that kind of thing or so forth. And um, that's all I got. So those four. All right, great, thank you. Okay, so we'll okay. tackle it one at a time, the rainy day. Uh, funds, which was the earlier question, is like $65 million defined raining. Is there uh, maybe examples of how the rainy day fund has been used historically that perhaps if passed as prologue, um, if we need it, we would tap into it again? I, I, I believe, I do not want to be quoted on this, but I believe the city did use the rainy day fund in 2008. Uh, you know, really, because of how reliant we are on income tax, any, any instance in which there is an, a, a rapid economic downturn where there's a lot of job loss, we will feel it almost instantly. 
unlike, say, a school district, which is property tax-based, it, it might be two years until they see the, the impacts of a declining economy and their revenue. We'll know it within a month because as soon as, if, if companies are laying people off because the market has fallen out from underneath them, that revenue stream is gone. And so I, I think if we were to experience anything similar to a 2008 financial crisis, um, I would imagine we would, we would have to very strongly consider tapping into our rainy day fund. Another one was about population trends. Well, that was a really interesting question because population trends have been falling off, although I think we're stabilizing as a city. Um, can you guys talk about uh, population loss and how that has impacted fiscal planning? Tremendously. Uh, if you look at our revenues, uh, if they just kept up with inflation, our general fund would be about $110 million richer uh, per year over the last 20 years. And that's quite a bit of money. That's mm -hmm. one, that's about one-seventh or one, yeah, about one-seventh of our current general fund would be added in as, as found money. Uh, we've seen population loss has been about 20% uh, since 2000. Job loss has been about the same, sort of, they, they are strongly correlated with each other. Our uh, tax base has, has been diminished immensely through uh, population loss, and that leads to vacant properties, which then has a, a knock-on effect of diminishing the value of adjacent properties. And so we've seen assessed values in entire neighborhoods fall 50% below where they were 20 years ago because of population loss. So. Mm. I think the, the loss has slowed, has slowed down over the last several years, but mm -hmm. it's still pointing in the wrong direction. Well, I know that um, we're running a little bit short on time. We have some few, um, a few more questioners. So uh, I'm gonna encourage the gentleman to, to speak to you guys after the event uh, for, the, for those other two questions. But I thought those first two were something we definitely wanted to get addressed. All right, let's go to the next question, please. Hello, I'm Jennifer Harding-Glasnow, and I'd like to ask you if you have any ideas of things you think the local media could do to help make the budget hearings more interesting. Thank you. <laughs> They're not interesting enough? Yeah, we're talking <laughs> make them more interesting. I mean, I, it's, it's... Have them here? <laughs> yeah, have a Jenny Cremail next to you. Um, you know, it's... I, I don't know interesting because it look it, it's it's most of the work in city hall is my son all the time he's four and he's like can I come to work with you I'm like no it's boring grown up stuff like my wife's a physical therapist so she has play stuff at work for like kids like that's not what everyone's work is like my work is just reading emails all day um, but but I do I would say to the media and and I, thank you for being here uh, because you know I I also want to help we've had a great influx of new media outlets. Uh, recently in Cleveland, which is good because I think we've seen what's happened to kind of the state of local media over the past couple decades, so there's been this huge vacuum to fill. Uh, that being said, I, I want to make sure that uh, the people who are eagerly covering City Hall have the opportunity to also kind of learn the ins and outs and understand what's happening and understand process because, you know, having worked Previously at City Hall, being in City Hall now, it's, it's I will say that a lot of a lot of the things that people kind of look at City Hall and say, why do they do it that way? You're like, actually, that's 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 understandable under Ohio Revised Code. But the question you should be asking is why we do this that way. You know, it's so, uh, trying to help help the media understand because 
I can only speak for myself, but we are relying on on you to help get the word out because no matter how many posts I make on Instagram or Facebook, no matter how many community events you have, there's no matter how many newsletters, there's always going to be someone who is missing. So I'm always looking for that one more opportunity to try to get the word out again. And I think that it's really important, especially for um, older residents in the city of Cleveland, is making sure maybe they may not ha- have internet uh, accessibility. Maybe they're not on Instagram. Um, but they still are, are very interested, engaged, um, oftentimes active voters, and, and want to be involved in the processes. So I think to your point, Councilman, that's really important, especially for the older residents in Cleveland. So thank you for, for, for teasing that out. Our next question, please. Hi, um, this is great. Um, my question, um, all right. We're losing population. Um, we want to bring more people from outside. Our um, expectations are changing about how we want to live our lives. Our part of money is pretty much the same. Um, what kinds of investment, innovative tools do we have in our toolkit that you're itching to explore um, that might sort of bring us to transformational change and not incremental change that, you know, um, and what does it take for us to participate in that? That's a great question. Uh, I think there are a handful, I'm sure many, many, many ways that we could uh, get at this. Uh, A couple of examples that immediately come to mind are some of the items that the city has enacted and is now pursuing to drive the kind of transformational change that we know we need. So one is the $50 million uh, industrial sites fund that um, the mayor proposed the city council, city council approved. The city was built, its sort of economic prowess was built through the industrial revolution in this country, through middle class, well-paying, family supporting jobs that people had close to where they lived. Um, that those jobs went away. Uh, you know, you, you just have to drive through a lot of our neighborhoods. You see empty factories. Um, you see empty parcels that once had factories on them uh, that had that provided really great opportunities for a lot of our residents. And this $50 million sites fund, which we're hoping to turn into a $200, $250 million sites fund over time, is designed to do what a government can to bring those kinds of jobs back to the city so that this is a place where no matter if you have a high school diploma or a PhD, there's a place for you to to have a good living, a good job uh, through advanced manufacturing and and those kinds of jobs. And through that work, we're hoping to revitalize at least 1,000 acres of land, bring 25,000 jobs back to the city, which would, if we bring those 25,000, if you look at other successes around the country, would really amount to another 40,000 on top of that, because if you, for every manufacturing job that is in a place, there's usually about 1.4 jobs that comes along to help support that work. Um, the other big item that comes to mind is the the waterfront investment work that, um, that the city is pursuing. And if for no other reason, if you just think about the great cities in the world that you visit, a pretty common denominator is incredible waterfront. Uh, we just like to be around, we're, we humans like to be near water. And in this city, we have made it really hard to be near the water. And even when you are there, it's not always the most pleasant experience. And so 
I think this kind of approach where we're focusing on family sustaining jobs and creating the kind of environment that people just want to be in, uh, we think can drive the kind of growth that, that we all know we need and, and make this, 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 this city a much more thriving place where we can turn around the decades of population loss and begin to rebuild. So all of that, and uh, I'll add on to it, only because I think, I think all of us have become a little wary of silver bullets, right? Like, if only we build... Remember that Simpsons episode with the monorail? Like, it's going to save Springfield. Um, in addition to all of that, a focus of mine, and really representing where I represent, which is uh, kind of a, uh, what the, the middle neighborhoods on the edge of the city, a, a wise individual once told me that uh, arguably all of Cleveland's current population loss is attributable to children. Um, and what I see, at kind of my vantage point, my view of the world, is we lose a lot of people who want to be in Cleveland, but we have an older housing stock. They, they you know, think that they can get more bang for their buck, better city services by moving uh, to the inner ring suburbs or further far out. And, and to me, it's important that we are, not because that it's the only way to be fulfilled is to have, you know, uh, you know children, but I, I think that if we aren't creating communities that work for people with young children, that that's sort of a barometer for us. And it's really important for us to be able to have just in addition to world-class assets and attractions, being able to fulfill the basic expectations of city services, public safety, having a park to go to. And I think from my neighborhood vantage point and in partnership with the administration, that's why we focus so intently on things like parks and rec centers because that's what keeps people in Cleveland neighborhoods. That's what makes people want to come here and if there's no silver bullet it has to be an all options approach and that's a really important option so awesome. well we've reached the end of the audience q a i want to give both of you all an opportunity for a closing thought before we get to our our comments so uh, we started with uh with ahmed first with councilman slife let's start with you okay reiterate to work in the city of cleveland and to gamble and that the <laughs> it's important <laughs> And that the budget has to be balanced. So that's, that's if, if there's one thing to learn from here, it's that the budget of the city of Cleveland by Ohio law has to be balanced, and that's the constraint within which we operate. The, the, I guess the ask is, as we attempt to find new ways to educate residents, I encourage you to uh, participate, uh, to tell people to come to meetings, uh, to reach out to council members. If we don't answer the email, reach out again, because we get a lot of emails, because uh, you know, speaking personally, I'm sure for many of my colleagues, if not all, we are, we are trying to keep our head above water, trying to be responsive, and trying to make sure that government's working and, and making sure that people know that we on city council care. And your input is valuable, and, and we want to figure out how we can do the most possible things with within the constrictions that we have within the budget. Um, let's keep it short. I think embrace the nuance of city government and city budgeting and stay engaged. Well, I think that there is obviously a lot of interest in city budgets, and we didn't even get to some of the topics like the American Rescue Plan Act and all those things. So I hope that this is not the end of uh, civic education experience, but just the beginning in such an important process. So uh, let's give both of our, our panelists a round of applause. So, Thank you again to Ahmed and Councilman Slife for joining us at the Happy Dog. 
Forums like this are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech and make a donation today at cityclub.org. Tonight's forum is also part of the City Club in the Community series sponsored by Bank of America. The City Club's final forum of 2023 will take place on Friday, December 15th. Author and professor Manny Teodoro from the University of Wisconsin-Madison will be here to discuss the intersection of the bottled water industry, citizens' trust in public utilities, and its impact on democracy. Thank you again to Ahmed and to Councilman Slife. Thank you to members and friends of the City Club, both here and all those live streaming. Hi, Mom and Dad. Uh, I'm Will Tarter, and this forum is now adjourned.